Hi, I'm Isa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hun. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Monday, July 17th. If you know Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, you know he's a TV guy at heart. He started his career working on a college TV show. He was a TV weatherman. He joined ABC and eventually ran the network, which Disney bought, and allowed him to rise through the ranks there. So even given all the problems in linear TV these days, thanks to cord cutting, the rocky transition to streaming, it was a bit surprising to hear Iger on CNBC last week from Sun Valley declaring that Disney's TV networks, in his words, quote, may not be core, end quote, to the company. A big deal because those words essentially allowed Iger to put a for sale sign on ABC, FX, Freeform, a division that represents about a third of Disney's revenue in recent years. But it's declining, of course, and no growth businesses are tough to justify long term, at least for a company like Disney that's really struggling to get its stock price up. And though Iger also wants to sell Disney's India TV assets that it got from Fox, he doesn't want to sell ESPN, or at least not all of it. Instead, Iger wants a strategic partner, he says, an investor that could be helpful for either content or distribution, which many have interpreted as meaning a deep-pocketed tech company like Apple or Amazon that could help ESPN afford the skyrocketing price of sports rights. Maybe a company like Comcast, which is already in the sports business and works with Disney on Hulu. Maybe this could be part of a swap for Hulu, which Disney needs to buy Comcast out of next year. One analyst told Bloomberg that a sale of Disney's TV assets could generate $8 billion, which seems a little low to me. But that's money Disney could definitely use right now. A lot to discuss today. So we've got Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg back with us. And it's Bob Iger's Disney fire sale. What's going? Why? And is it the right strategy? From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. Welcome back, Lucas. Welcome to, to day five of the strike, your favorite subject. It is my favorite subject because everyone's freaking the F out. That makes it my favorite subject. But today we are not talking about the strike. Today we are talking about Bob Iger and Disney and this for sale sign that he put out on a pretty big chunk of the company in this CNBC interview he did last week, which was obviously choreographed to announce to the world that he is a seller. He wants to sell off the TV assets. And I think we kind of always knew this, that the linear TV world was not 
the future of the Walt Disney Company. There's been a lot of speculation about ESPN and what he's going to do with that. And we got answers, at least what he would like to do with it in that interview. But I want to talk specifically at the start here about the TV networks. Why wouldn't Iger just sit there, milk the money that's coming in through these assets, allow them to produce revenue for the company, and then use it to fund the streaming aspirations that he has? Why sell? Why not just milk? I apologize for answering your question with a question. But one thing I can't figure out in this whole the last six months of Iger is whether he really wants to sell. He's made a lot of noise around assets that are non-core. He did that with Hulu, where he sort of seemed to intimate that Hulu was for sale or he didn't want to buy the rest of Hulu. And then he changed his mind. And this time, again, he seems to be sort of tossing out this balloon of, well, some of these assets, ABC, FX, Freeform, what have you, are non-core, which is a way of saying, I would be open to selling them. But one consistent point throughout Iger's return as CEO is it doesn't seem to me, or it's just not clear that he has a plan. Sometimes it feels like he's just tossing out ideas, which is very un-Iger, right? Like everything is so thought out and methodical and, and managed and no surprises. And it just doesn't feel that way this time. It feels like he doesn't really know exactly what the solution is, which is fine because nobody in media yeah, nobody knows. knows. I mean, the bottom is falling out of this TV business and streaming is costing an arm and a leg and not delivering and the market hates it. So what do you do there? And nobody's identified what the next big thing is that's going to power these media companies. And until they do, I think you have to entertain throwing things in the fire or selling them off if someone comes along. I mean, to me, this interview was come make us an offer. If you are ex-private equity firm out there and you are seeing value here because these are profitable networks, let's not forget, these are not money losers. These are profitable linear networks. They're just not growing and the future is going to look pretty bleak for them. But someone could come in here, buy them, get a lot of money out of them, and then figure out what to do with them five, 10 years down the line. He may not know what the correct path for success is, but I think he knows that one of the options on the table has to be getting a big check now. Yeah. To your initial question, Mm -hmm. why not milk them for cash? It's partially it's because he wants to show to Wall Street that there's more value in Disney that they're cur- than they're currently giving it, right? So if you sell a piece of ESPN, which I know we'll get to, or if you sell all of ABC, or even if you have talks, right? You're trying to create this illusion or this idea that ABC, Freeform, what have you, is worth X billion dollars. Similar, honestly, to what Paramount's been doing with BET, where I'm not really sure Paramount wants to sell BET, but Paramount having a market where it's out there that someone thinks BET is worth two or $3 billion should, in theory, lift the valuation of the whole company. So there's that part of it. Well, then then Paramount's having problems with BET because Tyler Perry, who is the, some say only, most say biggest buyer, is balking at the price, which is not great for Paramount. Uh, they want it out there that it's worth this huge price, but not sure anyone's willing to pay that. Yeah. 
And then there's like the questions around debt, right? You know, Disney's got a fair amount of debt. They have this bill coming from Comcast where they're going to have to pay billions of dollars for the rest of Hulu. Now, maybe they work out some negotiation to offset the cost. I assume that that happens. This could all be one big negotiation. But when you boil down to it, Bob Iger wants the stock price to go up and he wants more cash to fund streaming and pay down debts and buy Hulu. And to make all of that happen, he's going to have to part with something. And what's a non-core asset? What is appealing to a, a third party that might just want to milk it for cash? TV networks that are declining. Yeah, they're basically the new newspapers. You know, when all these private equity firms came in and bought newspapers because they recognized that, you know, maybe you don't have to pay the anchors of Good Morning America a combined $75 million a year to anchor a morning TV show whose ratings are probably not going to go up a whole lot in the new environment. Maybe you fire them or let their contracts expire and bring in cheaper anchors and you can make the extra money there. Like, those are the things that a private equity owner or some kind of value owner would do to ABC. And that's, I think, why everybody there is freaking out right now because they see that future and what happened to the newspaper industry. And they're like, oh, God, is that going to be us? I do wonder. I mean, ABC and Disney is sort of like there is a symbiotic relationship here. And Disney gets a lot of value out of owning these networks for promotional purposes. You can put your Marvel stars on Good Morning America. You can do a Disney-themed night of American Idol. You can, you know, blast your commercials across the entire Disney-owned television landscape. If they part with that, there are costs associated with that that I think might not be as tangible but might be felt by the other arms of the business. You agree there? Yeah, well, not only the the promotional part lacking, but you think about, say, the NBA deal that Disney's in the middle of renegotiating with with the league right now. Mm -hmm. One of the NBA's top priorities is to have games be on broadcast because it reaches more people. If Disney sells ABC, it all of a sudden is less appealing to the NBA, right? That's one of Warner Brothers Discovery's problems is that it only has TNT. It cannot offer a broadcast offering. Or you look at the streaming strategy and FX supplies many of Hulu's most popular shows. Now, you can keep a, the studio and sell the network and all that, but nobody's going to buy FX and want to not have any of the programming guaranteed. You'd have to work out some arrangement. There are definitely some complexities here where giving, giving away these TV networks would be problematic. Well, you guarantee that you will provide a certain amount of content and they will buy a certain amount of content. I mean, it could be done. But the other aspect is carriage. Let's say they sell these networks off individually. Owning ABC or owning Freeform on its own is not as valuable as having multiple cable networks that you can leverage for increased carriage fees. I mean, that was the whole model with having ESPN, is that ESPN was so valuable and such a must-have for the cable bundle that Disney could package it up with these other networks and extract more value for everything. One network that I feel like nobody has talked about. Do you think that Disney would ever sell the Disney Channel? It's funny. I actually wrote Disney Channel in one of my columns, and then I took it out because nobody else had referenced it. And <laughs> I, I think I think that's I think that's why. Why would Disney sell the Disney Channel? Like that's, I would say that's a core asset. Having yeah. your name in the channel. I mean, they could do something where. Remember when? Initially, Freeform was the Fox Family Channel. And then it became ABC Family. And then it became, yeah. So you could do something like that. But 
Um, you know, the ratings on these kids networks have just plummeted because as you know, I know as a parent, you just don't plop your kid in front of those anymore. You put them on Disney plus. So yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but it might be tough. All right. So let's, we've danced around this a little bit, but let's get to ESPN here because this is the most interesting aspect here. Iger in this CNBC interview said he doesn't want to sell ESPN, not all of it, but he would be open to a strategic partner. Uh, and someone who could bring either, quote, content or distribution. Now, I take that to mean tech company. You know, someone with a lot of money, Apple, Amazon, Google with YouTube, can come in, become a partner in ESPN, help offset the costs of the sports rights, which are onerous, and perhaps get a package of games for those channels or partner on the distribution of ESPN over the top. How did you take the content or distribution line of Iger to me? Yeah, I think you're 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 right that the initial instinct that a lot of people had was tech. That feels very unlikely to me in a minority position, right? So keep in mind, so Hearst still owns a chunk of of ESPN. I think it's about twenty percent. So Disney's got eighty. The best, the best free money the Hearst family has ever encountered in the existence of the Hearst family has been a passive interest in ESPN. Free money, so, basically. If you're Disney and you assume that you still want to keep majority control, right? So you're talking about shopping up to thirty percent in ESPN. Now, that's something that could appeal to a financial institution, but it doesn't sound like that's what Bob Iger is interested in. So if you're talking about a strategic partner, one possibility is tech, I guess, but Apple and Amazon, they'll take minority stakes in sort of key suppliers, if you will, or parts of their kind of infrastructure ecosystem. But I don't see why or or how ESPN plays into that, right? So they're independently buying rights to sports. Now, I guess they could say, well, ESPN has a lot of these locked up. We get some this way and you like cross fertilize across Amazon streaming service, but also ESPN plus. But that seems very messy. I'm not sure how it works. I'm not sure how it benefits anyone. You get preferential treatment. If you are Apple and you buy into ESPN, presumably that would come with certain games on your service or the ability to sell the over-the-top service through a discount on Apple TV+. But that then weakens ESPN. Perhaps, but you don't don't make it exclusive. You just make it as a discount or you prefer it or something like that where they do get a benefit, but the overall carriage of ESPN wouldn't go down. Look, Bob Iger has long had a love affair with Apple. He's happy to tell anyone who listened that Steve Jobs was a friend, mentor, advisor. He was on the board. He was, yeah, but they were on their respective boards. And Bob Iger was driving force behind buying Pixar. And Disney has been very early in experimenting with what, you know, whether it was the iTunes store with the show Lost and some other shows, or they were present at the most recent Vision Pro headset event. And Bob Iger has given many of his employees copy of of different Apple books. But it's possible. It just feels messy, and I'm not sure how that solves either of their problems. I think there's some other third parties floating out there that might make more sense. Like a DraftKings or FanDuel or one of those? Fanatics. Fanatics. Like, like Michael Rubin wants to uh, have the best parties in the universe, and he knows that owning a piece of, M- of ESPN would allow him to have better parties for Fourth of July. 
Yeah, he that's a guy who's got like his fingers in every which position. And so why not? But he, he and he there's has probably a couple athletes that have not come to his parties yet that he could get yeah. if he owned ESPN. So that's that feels more likely. But I, I couldn't really or, or could they work out something? You know, they're in this negotiation with Hulu. I think your colleague Bill Cohen wrote about this. Like, could Comcast buy a minority stake in ESPN in exchange for some of the Hulu stuff? Now, again, I don't know how having a minority stake in ESPN benefits Comcast. Bill actually suggests that Disney and Comcast do a deal where they essentially swap Hulu for ESPN, meaning Disney doesn't have to pay to acquire all of Hulu, but Comcast would get a majority interest in ESPN and they would make up the difference with cash. So... That would be interesting because that would that's not what Iger is suggesting. He's not suggesting losing control of ESPN. He's suggest especially to his arch rival Brian Roberts at Comcast, but he's suggesting having a minority partner would kind of make sense that if Comcast is looking to go even deeper into sports, they already have the NBC sports apparatus. Having ESPN would be a nice thing for them, especially if they want to supercharge their digital assets. Yeah, I could see Comcast wanting to buy control of ESPN. But that's, again, where you lose me a little bit. It doesn't seem like that's what Iger wants to do. Right, yeah. And having those two in partnership on ESPN, where Disney controls it and Comcast is a minority partner, then we're back to the Hulu situation all over again, which was never ideal because Comcast and Disney are not friends. They are fierce rivals. So that's not what... Iger wants, I don't think. Yeah. I need someone to explain to me the rationale behind another media company, a strategic player, essentially, taking a minority passive stake in an asset owned by one of their competitors. I just don't, I don't totally get it, why that would appeal to them. Whereas a third party that's not in that business yet wanting to get in, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Well, you have examples of that with Disney. I and mean, Disney is a minority owner of A&E Networks which is a cable television and studio company that Disney has a passive, not passive, they have a board seat on, but it's not a majority of that company. And it seems to work pretty well. Yeah, but that came about a long time ago and wasn't when the asset was declining and feels like less sexy, less essential, less relevant than something like ESPN, which for all of its problems is still the largest and most important sports media brand in the world. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Iger keeps teasing us that ESPN is going to be available in an a la carte or bundle package 
digitally soon, but he's not telling us when. Didn't he provide the update of he now, after talking about it being an inevitability, he now knows when? So they have picked, I think he said something to that effect. They have picked a date. Yeah, not tomorrow, but not very far off or whatever he said. Yeah. Well, and also, how are you going to do a strategic transaction if you're about to also make such a big strategic move with the company? Wouldn't any person buying into it want to know the plan there or be part of the plan? You would think so. Yes. <laughs> uh, but. You know, the the great thing they have going for them is that ESPN, like you said, is an amazing asset and is one of the only thing in the television world that is basically guaranteed eyeballs. So there's going to be a huge valuation. You wrote this past weekend that the valuation of ESPN, according to one analyst, was what, $8 billion? That seems low to me. Seems low. Yeah. Especially in a world where someone is potentially valuing the CAA talent agency at $7 billion. I'd say ESPN is a little more valuable than that. It's possible that that was more around the ABC freeform FX assets than ESPN. Okay. But yes, I think, I think ESPN is worth more than $8 billion. Yeah, but you know, the knock on ESPN, as we've discussed on the show, is that they are not owners of this amazing content. They rent it from these leagues, and they are essentially over a barrel on what these leagues decide to charge them. And that's the whole problem they're in right now is that, you know, they're looking at these NBA negotiations as being like, oh, my God, our cost of the same product is going to triple. So where does that leave the economics of ESPN? Well, that's why if I'm one of these tech companies and I'm looking at it strategically, you see the costs of all these rights going way up. And the traditional players that have managed to hold on to them so far, their revenue is not keeping up with the increase in costs, right? That's oh, the, the sharks cr- are in the water. I mean, if you think about this, it's obvious. Wouldn't you just wait for one of these things to essentially break? Wouldn't you look and say like, okay, a couple of years from now, Paramount might not be able to afford its NFL contract. A couple of years from now, well, Comcast NBC Universal is probably more insulated, but like Warner Brothers Discovery might regret one of the deals it does, or Disney with ESPN, which has so many different rights, might try to get out of something, and you can swoop in and get it. You don't have to. You don't have to buy the thing because it's a renter. You can just wait for some of these rights to suddenly become available because other people can't afford it. And if you're Apple or Amazon, you're going to be just fine. I think that's already happening. Honestly, I think that's why Apple was able to get the. MLS soccer rights for the entire league is because the RSN model doesn't really work for soccer or what what Apple is offering works better. And then they can control those rights. And I think you're seeing it in the other RSN models right now where these leagues are looking for other options. And maybe it makes sense for one of these leagues to do a deal with a tech company that can pay them a bunch of money and control those rights and then dole them out to different channels. I mean, I think in the NBA deal, we're already seeing the ramifications of this because, I mean, David Zaslav said it himself. We don't have to have the NBA. You don't say that if you are confident in your ability to maintain the NBA. He knows the economic situation of that company, and he knows if the rights fees double or triple that he may not be able to compete with Apple, Amazon, or the others. And it's going to be the carriage he has and the convenience of being on networks that people are used to watching these games on that is going to be the differentiator for them, not their ability to pay. So he's got to downplay the value there. I I just think that we're already seeing this. Yeah, no, it's already happened. There's going to be a tech partner in the next NBA deal. It'll probably be Amazon, maybe Apple. 
YouTube went after uh, NFL Sunday ticket. It's been happening bit by bit, but I think there could be a point in the next three to five years where even where, where some existing deals become a big problem. I mean, look, you know, I think you and I both poked a little bit of fun at, at Netflix co-founder Reed Hastings when he said that the cable TV business was going to be broken in five years. But there are there are aspects of it that are dangerously close to being true. Yeah, and I think maybe what he was suggesting is that the economics will get bad enough where people will start to make moves. Yeah. And that's clearly what Iger is thinking. So do you think this happens? Do you think they find a buyer and Iger does a deal? I think he could definitely find a minority partner in ESPN if that's what he wants to do. As it pertains to the bigger TV networks, or not to the bigger, but to the other TV networks, I still have a really hard time seeing him selling them. I had a meeting with a mogul a few months back who knows Iger, and I asked about, you know, this was back when he'd been talking about maybe selling Hulu, and it was clear that he was thinking about unloading assets. And this person just made the comment that, you know, Iger's always been a buyer and a builder, not a seller. And yeah, but he's had that luxury in part because the cable bundle threw off so much revenue. A hundred percent. And people change. Rupert Murdoch was always a buyer and a builder until he decided to sell. And maybe Iger has now reached a similar moment. But, you know, ABC is what brought Iger to Disney in the first place. We've both brought up a bunch of reasons why it's, it's complex. You know, if I were him, not that it's a, as good an asset, but like you don't need freeform. Find a buyer for that. Like sell that for a couple of billion dollars. Yeah. Fi- sell a minority stake in ESPN. Yeah, maybe even Comcast. Comcast might even want freeform. Selling ABC and FX still just feels like a pretty crazy move to me. FX to me, not so much because you can maintain the studio. I mean, Fair. switch over all the productions to 20th TV. Yeah, you have to produce some shows for them, but move John Landgraf and his team over to Hulu. And what is FX without the engine of interesting creative creativity? They get a lot of their ratings from the output deals for movies that FX shows, you know, first run cable TV movies. And that could be anyone that owns that. It's the originals that they want. And that could, those can move over to Hulu. For most viewers like me, they already have. So I don't see that much value. It's ABC that I think gives Disney a lot of value just because, you know, being in the news business, being in that broad reach the masses business, as as diminished as it is, it's still something. And I don't see Disney getting out of that. So I think sell the other stuff, keep ABC. That makes sense to me. All right. Thank you, Lucas. This will be a story that uh, I think will unfold over the rest of the year. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have a very similar conversation a month from now. All right, we're back with the call sheet. Craig, welcome back. Thank you. Anything happened when I was gone? Well, the world kind of went to shit while you were gone. Let's see, there's an actor strike, uh, Mission Impossible underperformed, the Wonka trailer dropped. I mean, it was disaster after disaster. I enjoyed just watching my email blow up as I was sitting in a cabana in Hawaii. Yeah, you're like, ah, great. Don't have to deal with the bonus (laughs) pod this week. (laughs) Uh, No, we missed you, but glad to have you back. And uh, I want to talk today a little bit about the impact of the strike, specifically on movies. I'm looking at the release calendar for summer 2024. And this is some sketchy stuff. Like with actors not working, a lot of these movies have shut down. 
And my prediction today is that a number of these movies, and specifically the Deadpool sequel, Deadpool 3, which is currently scheduled for the first week of May, my prediction is Deadpool 3 is not making that release date and will soon get bumped to later in the year or perhaps even 2025. I mean, every major movie that is currently shooting right now that is had that had to pause because of the strike likely won't come out at its at its date if the date is next year, right? Yes, but for some of them it's like okay, just move it a couple months it doesn't matter. But Disney owns that first week of May, specifically Marvel owns it. And I was looking in for almost every single year since Marvel became a thing in 2007, Disney has staked out that first weekend, the Iron Man weekend right. to kick off the summer with a big Marvel movie. It was Some, what, Guardians 3 this year? Yeah, Guardians 3 this year, Doctor Strange 2 last year. That's where the Avengers movies all opened. I mean, that's their weekend. And they did a shift a, a month or two ago, moving a movie out of that slot and putting Deadpool 3 in there. I think because Disney really didn't think this strike would happen because the Deadpool movie was shooting. Director Sean Levy is still shooting with Ryan Reynolds. And now everything is shut down. They've got this release date that is just staring them in the face. And if this strike goes longer than a month or so, which almost everyone, including me, believes it will, that's going to push that movie because there's a lot that has to happen once they finish shooting with these big effects-driven movies, and they don't want another Ant-Man 3 situation where they put a movie in theaters and the visual effects look like shit. So they're going to have to push if they if this strike goes longer than a month. Is this going to help the indie film market, or at least the films that don't require two years to make that they can turn around quicker and actually release next year while all of these major movies that require a lot of visual effects are delayed? Are there a lot of smaller movies that are going to succeed next year? Maybe. I mean, there is a waiver. They're not calling it a waiver. They're calling it an agreement to an interim agreement that independent producers can get if your movie is not financed by or distributed by one of the struck companies. So if it's a true independent, you can continue shooting and you can release the movie with your stars promoting it. Because remember, that's the big element here is promotion. You know, you want to have your stars available to let people know the movie's coming out. You know, maybe movies go into those slots next summer and get a bigger audience. I'm not sure, you know, already independent films get released in the summer. And with exceptions, they typically don't do very well. It's the big blockbuster movies that people expect to see in theaters. Will a lack of those movies help independent films? Sure. But I don't think, you know, you put an A24 movie or you put an independently released movie in that early May slot and all of a sudden you've got Deadpool. <laughs> you don't. That's not how it works. Yeah. I just wonder if the movies that require a quicker turnaround are going to be just released more next year because there's going to be a lack of blockbusters. So that we're going to have a lot more movies of just people talking in rooms. Or what might happen is some of these movies that were set to come out this fall that are dependent on promotion, they're finished, they're done. But, you know, a movie like the Zendaya movie, Challengers. Yeah, they'll hold them. Yeah. Maybe they hold that movie. That's a little tough because it was scheduled to open Venice. And I think that would piss Venice off if they <laughs> moved it or held it. But maybe you could do Venice and then hold it. That movie depends on Zendaya promoting. It's a yeah, kind of smaller definitely. dramedy. And they paid her $10 million to be in this movie with the hope that she would promote it on red carpets and social media and get younger people to be interested. But if she's 
not able to do that, it decreases the value and maybe they bump it to next spring or summer and the strike presumably will be over by then and she can promote it and hopefully it'll do better then. But a lot of decisions being made this week and next week at these studios about what to do if they don't have access to actors. And it's just going to be chaos and a disaster, which sucks for Hollywood, but I guess good for us. Lots to talk about. Great time. What, what a, The first two years of the town have been just filled <laughs> with content. I hate to say it, but we launched this show at the right time. Oh, yeah. The slap basically kicked the show off. Every, everything is going to shit. That's, there's a lot to talk about. All right. That's the show for today. I want to thank our guest, Lucas Shaw. I want to thank producer Craig Horbeck. I want to thank editor Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you later this week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.